0: and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masterson. Today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Saturday's gathering of American and European fascists and their sympathizers at the New York Young Republican Club's annual gala, at which, in closing remarks, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene said to rapturous applause that if she and Steve Bannon had organized a January 6th storming of the Capitol, quote, We would have won, not to mention it would have been armed. The significance of this is that the new Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, has sold what is left of his pathetic soul to Green in the hope she will help him get elected Speaker and, as a quid pro quo, lawmakers in the next Congress will be supporting lawbreakers. Joining us is someone who attended then was tossed out of Saturday's Gala, Michael Edison Hayden, a senior investigative reporter at the Southern Poverty Law Center. A three-time grantee of the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, he is the author of a new report at the Southern Poverty Law Center's Hate Watch blog about Saturday's fascists' festivities, White Nationalists Other Republicans' Brace for Total War. Then we'll look into the new black and Latino Republican members of Congress who helped flip the House from the Democrats' and ran as full-on MAGA candidates, winning decisively without moderating their politics. Joining us to investigate the seven, four of whom won seats previously held by Democrats, is Joseph Lowndes, a professor of political science at the University of Oregon, and an expert on conservatism, the Tea Party, social movements, the GOP, race, and elections. He's the author of From the New Deal to the New Right, Race and the Southern Origins of Modern Conservatism, and his co-author of Producers, Parasites, Patriots, Race and the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity. We'll discuss his article at the New Republic with Daniel Hossain, how right-wing candidates of color delivered the House to Republicans. Then finally, with Senator Bernie Sanders suggesting Arizona Senator Sinema's switch from Democrat to Independent happened because, quote, I think Democrats there are not all that enthusiastic about somebody who helps sabotage some of the most important legislation that protects the interests of working families and voting rights and so forth. So I think it really has to do with her political aspirations in Arizona. Joining us is Kai Newkirk, a progressive organizer in Tempe, Arizona, who co-founded Democracy Spring and was the architect of the largest American civil disobedience action of this century, he has trained thousands of people across America in movement organizing and nonviolent direct action and he is the co-founder of the Arizona Coalition to End the Filibuster and the Cinema Primary Pledge.com project. And joining us now is Michael Edison Hayden, a senior investigative reporter at the Southern Poverty Law Center, a three-time grantee of the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. He has previously written for the Los Angeles Times, Newsweek, Vice and the National Geographic and his work has also been featured in the New York Times, Slate, Foreign Policy, ABC News and the Wall Street Journal. And he is the author of the new report at the Southern Poverty Law Center's hate watch blog White Nationalists, Other Republicans Brace for Total War. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Edison Hayden.
1: Thank you for having me, Ian.
0: So total war, of course, is what the head of the New York Young Republican Club stated in his opening remarks to this meeting that took place on Saturday night, their annual gala at which Steve Bannon and a bunch of European neo-Nazis and other top right-wing or far right-wing leaders like Peter Brimelow, etc., were there. Uh, What grabbed the headlines, of course, was when one of their speakers, Marjorie Taylor Greene, said, then January the 6th happened, and the next thing you know, I organized the whole thing, along with Steve Bannon, which, of course, was a reference to the accusations that she led a reconnaissance tour of the Capitol before January the 6th. And then she wanted to say, I will tell you something. If Steve Bannon and I organized that, we would have won, not to mention it would have been armed. So there you have a United States... Congresswoman calling for armed insurrection and saying that she would have done it January the sixth a lot better. She's obviously somebody that the new Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, is sucking up to and selling off his credibility in huge chunks in order to get her to vote for him. So there's a sort of madness gripping the land. I mean, I know you got tossed out of the event. I want to talk to you about it later, but just to touch on that highlight which is getting a lot of attention what has become of this country if you have lawmakers encouraging the worst form of lawbreaking
1: yeah it's really it, it's really bad it's really startling and quite disturbing obviously for for anyone i mean it, i think we're all kind of inured uh, to how extreme uh, the republican party has come uh, become in the aftermath of trump's election in some ways, but there's always seems to be new levels uh, to this. And uh, Marjorie Green, Taylor Greene definitely hit one that night. It's not just that, that she did, it's that she did it in the context... Of speaking to a number of people who are of the radical right movement, people with ties to what you know what you would just call in a bar fascist, I guess you know including people like Jack Posobiec, who is uh, you know responsible for uh, amplifying Pizzagate and a number of other things and had had amplified enough number of Russian intelligence plots. Including the attempt to uh, sway the outcome of the 2017 French elections, right? You have figures like Raheem Kassam, who pushed uh, a British gentleman who, who pushed a lot of disinfo in the aftermath of the 2020 election in the run up to uh, January 6th. And of course, you have these you know, folks in uh, Alternative for Germany, uh, folks from the Austrian Freedom Party. These are extreme uh, radical right. Figures all in the same room, and and Marjorie Taylor Greene is talking about insurrection. Yeah, pretty pretty startling, and definitely cause for alarm.
0: So I just mentioned the uh, the head of the New York Young Republicans Club, in his opening address, he said, "We want to cross the Rubicon. We want total war. We, we must be prepared to do battle in every arena, in the media, in the courtroom, at the ballot box, and in the streets." This is the only language the left understands, the language of pure and unadulterated power. So that's yeah. kind of a declaration of war, is it not? It,
2: it,
1: it, it certainly is. And uh, what, um, I mean, it, it is not a stretch to call this fascist. This is, this is the uh, core of fascist rhetoric, right? This is exactly what we're talking about, uh, this binary, this friend-enemy distinction, um, and, and he's not talking about a foreign adversary. He is talking about Americans. Uh, and he's talking when he says do it in the streets, um, what would do what in the streets? Exactly. Uh, physically assault people. Um, yeah, it's really scary because this is again, uh, multiple members of Congress in this are sitting in this room, uh, newly elected members of Congress. This is the rhetoric that they're, that they're hearing. Nobody is walking out. Um, You know, these associations with uh, white nationalists are there for everyone to see. It's a bad scene. And, you know, look, when I say we should be alarmed, I am not a person who likes to go into hyperbole about this stuff. So for me to say this is alarming, (laughs) I think, yeah, think yeah, it is alarming. And I think there, it, it, is a, it, it is essential that we limit the number of people who are in that room or associated with people in that room who are in power, and try to keep as many of them who are close to power out of it as soon as possible.
0: But when Margie Taylor Greene basically said Steve Bannon and I would have done January the sixth a lot better and would have been and we would have been armed, the whole place erupted into cheers.
1: Yeah, I, look, it, it, it's a. It's an environment. It's an environment uh, where um, they are not offering any particular cookies or anything like that to improve your material. Right? There's nothing in that, in these speeches. If you listen to them, she's the rest of the time she's talking about butt plugs and whatever else, and and trying to stigmatize LGBTQ people. The the rest of the time it's just you know it's just um, BS and filler. But it's these it's these moments where where they're talking about war, threats of war, that the crowd is most engaged, and the people in that room are most engaged, right? And and that's because they're not, again, not offering any kind of material improvements on your life. They are merely offering destruction of the enemy, and that is uh, the core of fascist ideology.
0: And uh, Michael Heslin Hayden, I forgot to mention <laughs> another important attendee at this Saturday gathering of the New York Young Republicans Club at uh, 583 Park Avenue on New York's Upper East Side, none other than uh, Donald Trump Jr. Did you get a chance to interact with him?
1: Uh, I didn't get a chance to interact with Donald Trump Jr. He was uh, flanked by folks that appeared to be security, who had kind of um, had some pretty sharp elbows, from what I understand uh, from other folks uh but um close enough that i was next to his table uh close enough that i was next to um marjorie Taylor green about uh 3 4 feet away from her at one point um yeah i mean i will say one thing about these folks while the rhetoric uh is really 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 um alarming they themselves there's a, there, there there is also a level of patheticness to this um, you know the uh, the kind of oh uh, giving each other awards and this and 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 for for doing nothing uh the kind of silliness of the whole debacle the kind of uh, slightly off-key rendition of the star-spangled banner gaudy uh trashy ridiculous very much in the in the kind of uh, arena of trumpism the kind of uh style that we're familiar with already
0: tackiness yeah.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very it seems to be a signature of American fascism.
0: And and Trumpism as well. Mhm. So, tell us about how you got tossed out and why.
1: Well, I think it's important to uh note um that we completed the whole evening. Um and strategically uh, it was important for us to try to do that. So, we thought there was a very strong possibility that we would come in the door and there'd be like some sort of recognition of who we are because we did buy it under our own names.
0: You mean you so, bought it uh, under the Southern Poverty Law Center's name? Well, we didn't
1: use Southern Poverty Law Center by name, but uh, we we gave our names for name checks, so. and I gave the name Mike Hayden, which is. Um, you know, I've reported on so many of these figures that were at this event um, and not in a distant way. I have been through their tax filings of people. I've, uh, I've written 13,000 word extremist file on Jack Bezobic. He knows me very well. Uh, so these are people that really don't like me. So somebody was not doing a good job vetting. Um, and when we got in, there was nobody there. They were just like, take your name tags, and we just took them, and then we very quietly went down uh, to the cocktail reception and uh, laid low. I, I, I took photographs of, of folks um, you know, in a, as discreet a manner as I could. Uh, then we got up to the thing, and, and we wanted to make through uh, the speeches and be able to document as much as possible, so we, uh, so we, you know, we, we did our best with that. And kept, you kept
0: we, a low profile.
1: Yeah, we we basically did that, uh, and I would just go through, and and, and what I found was very funny is just, like, so many of these folks uh, want to think of themselves as celebrities and want to be thought of as as famous, Um, so when you take their pictures, uh, they don't really they don't find it uh, particularly strange. Everybody wants to think of themselves as worthy of of, of strangers taking their photographs. So uh, I took a lot of photographs of people and and of faces and tables. And um, then we waited until after a green speech, which closed the night, and then there was a a kind of milling about and talking at the end of the night. And that's when we uh, strategically kind of planned the folks we wanted to talk to. And uh, with the understanding that uh, old people would figure it out and uh, seek to remove us, most likely at that point. So we spoke to uh, Peter and, well, we followed Peter, and we were about to speak to Peter and Lydia Brimlow, but then we watched Peter going to speak to Steve Bannon, and so we said so we laid back and we wanted to document that, because that's relatively significant uh, in our field. Um, Bannon has, for a very long time, uh, you know, Kind of uh trafficked in material that is friendly to white nationalist sites he is helps he helps mainstream white nationalism through Breitbart but it's never been like sort of a direct link between him and the Brimlows who run VD, which is an important link to make and uh just, we were ex- able just to elaborate
0: make- on that a bit for our audience will you who brimlow is
1: yeah brimlow uh runs VD, which is a kind of suit and tie white nationalist. Uh, organization. They have a a publication and and so forth. And, um, yeah, they traffic in the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory. You have articles, you know, where they warn about white genocide. Um, They are interested in increasing the number of white immigrants into the United States and stopping non-white immigration. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are a white nationalist.
0: Fascist, right? Uh,
3: yeah,
1: yeah. You know, okay. I mean, they're, they're pro January sixth, pro Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. The organizer for the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville writes for their publication. So we are dealing. You're, you're dealing with a, a you know a straight up sure. white nationalist group.
0: So and, go ahead. Um, you, they, so he met with yeah, Bannon.
1: Well, so so yeah, we waited for them to introduce themselves to Bannon, get the photographs, see how they interacted with one another, notice that there was a familiarity and warmth between them, document that, and then attempt to speak to Brimlow's. Uh, they did not want to speak to us, uh, and uh, then I spoke to Josh Hammer of Newsweek, which is a very interesting fellow because what is what is Newsweek doing in the middle of this? But he is a kind of political operative that Newsweek installed in in uh, May of 2020. And he has been, uh, you know, people who have been noticing their opinion section have known a number of far-right extremists randomly getting bylines in Newsweek.
0: Well, he's in uh, charge and, of their, their opinion section.
1: Correct. And, you know, there's a lot of speculation as to how he may have wound up there, whether there was some sort of string attached or something, because Newsweek has financial problems. And he has been using, you know, I, I don't know how he got there uh, exactly, but I wanted to ask him and... um you know, I essentially asked him. I said, "Hey, are, are you, you know, you're going to speak to Peter Brimlow," and uh, I, I, I had introduced myself, but I don't think he really knew who I was uh, when I said it. And uh, even though I said it, even though I've written about him, and um, I said SBLC very clearly, and he just didn't seem to register it. And he said, "Brimlow's here." Oh, I'm definitely going to go talk to him. And I said, "Okay, that's, does he know what he's talking about here? Is he, is he sure? Uh, you know." And then I then I said. Uh, yeah, and how did you get your job at Newsweek? And his face kind of just slackened, because then he realized it was me, um, because I had been asking him that uh, by email for a while, uh, questions mm-hmm. about that, asking his organization questions about that. And then that sort of started the clock on us getting out. So we started to interview Jack Posobiec, who's a a, 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 a social media influencer for the far right. And have uh, had a long conversation with him that got very testy, He called me a scumbag, um, Josh Hammer came in to warn him of who I was, but that didn't matter. I had introduced myself and Jack knew who I was uh, very clearly. And um, yeah, I mean, after Jack got very agitated and, and, and uh, started cursing and, and all kinds of other things, um, Vish Burra, who's a kind of a burly fella um, on a worked me towards the exit of the place and start shoving me and things like that. But by that point, it was already after midnight. We had got our story. We got, um, you know, by one thirty, we got to uh, the hotel. And, well, actually, that's not true. We were at the hotel before that. But by one thirty, we were done touching base with our editors and things like that and spent the whole night writing it. And that is the final product that you got there.
0: And there were demonstrators outside, were there not, when the event began?
1: Yes, there were. There was a, a you know a small uh, contingent of anti-fascist protesters at the event, and police had really segregated it and from them from the from the attendees of the uh, of, um, of the event, and uh, were essentially uh, the police were essentially acting as security for this for this thing, um, which is
0: uh, pretty you know,
2: disgusting.
1: Your tax, dollar, your tax, yeah, your tax dollars. Have <laughs> right. But let me hard. quickly
0: in the last minute here, I want to touch on the FBI. Uh, Annual report came out on hate and extremism. Uh, They cite over 7,000 incidents of racially biased motivated crimes and growing domestic extremism in the United States. But of course, their figures are low because not all law enforcement agencies now participate in this FBI annual report in 2020, 93% of law enforcement agencies participated. But in 2021, for this report, only 65% participated. And so what do you think the real numbers are in terms of, of hate crimes in
1: 2021? So, I mean, certainly if with the decline in the number of police departments participating, it's going to be underreported for sure. I can't tell you the exact number of what it is, but I can speak to only the the, the tenor of the rhetoric out there and um, the desire to do harm based on hate uh, remains uh, very, very hot in the United States. And the time where I felt it was we were at our most, things were at their most dangerous uh, in the U.S., whereas actually uh, from 2018 to 2019, I don't know what, where the numbers are comparable to that. But during that period, we had so many—we just had a string, a repeated string of terror attacks, from Tree of Life terror attack to to uh, the attack uh, on Christchurch, which is of course New Zealand. But he was referring to an American audience based upon his uh, manifesto. There, so it's a very online thing. Uh, then there was of course the Poway synagogue attack. Uh, in April of 2019, and then of course in August there was uh, culminating that El Paso shooting, and it seemed like after that, federal law enforcement began to take uh, the threat of white supremacist terror and um, hate crimes a lot more seriously. Um, and there seems like things have been become uh, you know the the issue is not being shrugged off uh, the same way it was prior to that that string that I'm talking about here. I don't know about. You know how all all of this compares in in terms of data, because uh, I was not necessarily prepared for that for this call. But what I can say is that the desire to do harm on a large scale basis remains, you know, intact in the same way it was. The FBI has, you know, stepped up its its efforts a little bit after that time. We saw the horrific attack in Buffalo, of course, and we just had what happened in Colorado. So uh, it's, I guess, a reminder to stay very vigilant.
0: Well, Michael Edison-Hayden, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much, Ian. It's always a pleasure to talk to
0: you. Well, thank you, Michael. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Edison-Hayden, a senior investigative reporter at the Southern Poverty Law Center, a three-time grantee of the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, Hendy is the author of a new report at the Southern Public Law Center's hate watch blog, White Nationalists, Other Republicans Brace for Total War. We're going to take a brief station break and be back looking into the new black and Latino Republican members of Congress who helped flip the house from the Democrats. Everybody
3: loves cowboys and clowns. Just a little while But when the goodbyes are said And the spotlight goes dead There's no one left who cares to hang around To love the cowboy
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Joseph Lowndes, who's a professor of political science at the University of Oregon and an expert on conservatism, the Tea Party, social movements, the GOP, race and elections. He's the author of From the New Deal to the New Right, Race and the Southern Origins of Modern Conservatism and the co-author of Producers, Parasites, Patriots, Race in the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity. And he has an article at the New Republic with Daniel Hossang, How Right-Wing Candidates of Colour Delivered the House to Republicans. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joseph Lowndes.
4: Thanks, Ian. It's nice to be back.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, we're talking on the day when the FBI released its annual report on hate crimes, counting over 7,000 hate crimes in 2021, which apparently is way down from the actual numbers because in 2020, 93% of law enforcement agencies participated in the study, but in 2021, only 65% participated in the study. So it's not an accurate figure, but it's still alarming. So in terms of some of the candidates you profile in your article at the New Republic, how right-wing candidates of color delivered the House to Republicans, one in particular Stands out. George Santos, who won a seat in Long Island, took it from the Democrats, and that helped flip the House. He was at the January 6th Stop the Steel rally. I don't know whether he went into the Capitol or not, but he was also at this right wing gathering on Saturday in New York at the Young Republicans Club, at which the colorful, shall we say, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene made this outrageous statement. She said that uh, then January the 6th happened, and the next thing you know, I organized the whole thing along with Steve Bannon. She was sort of making a joke about the accusations that she held a led a reconnaissance to. And then she said, I will tell you something. If Steve Bannon and I organized that, we would have won, not to mention it would have been armed. At that point, the entire crowd, including this uh, congressman who just got elected to your profile, uh, cheered. So what's your sense of how radical this new crop of congresspeople are? Because as as the article points out, it should, I'm just quoting from the article, it should alarm Democrats that these midterm contenders delivered big wins for the GOP, all without moderating their MAGA identity. Well, boy. Well, that's what we're talking about right not moderating a mag identity
4: yeah so you know there's a bunch of complicated things going on here and the first thing to directly answer your question i these candidates you know the ones who won as well as the ones who lost don't stand out for the most part as really um the you know the far as being with the far right flank of house Republicans they're not um, except for maybe George Santos in some ways. They're not not—they're not necessarily like, you know, Paul Gosar or the, you know, the Matt Gates or the uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's of the party, but they are solidly on the right, solidly conservatives, Trump-supported, for the most part, anti-abortion, pro-gun, uh, anti-critical race theory, you know, so they, they kind of would tick off many of the boxes that you would get from the, the kind of the Republican right more broadly. So, you know, partly what we wanted to, Point out in this article is that they were able to run these races partly, um, partly by running of ca- as candidates of color. There's kind of a, there's a set of assumptions around that, that they are not going to stand out as, they're not going to signify as MAGA Republicans. Uh, it, it, but the other thing which is interesting is that for the most part, these candidates actually didn't run as, say, colorblind candidates who um who submerged the issue of race? For the most part, uh, these candidates all ran strongly on on a racial biography, racialized biography about um, upbringings as black or as Latino. And so, um, you know, there's there's a complicated thing about the way that race is mobilized here. And I think there's you know there's there's a complicated thing more generally about how the right and the far right kind of you know, as a political formation is mixing white supremacy with multiracialism, sometimes triangulated against, you know, with anti-Semitism or with with evangelical identity or kind of masculinized identities or kind of, you know, um, anti-communist identities. But there's a a whole mix of things going on that make it so that we can't speak in any clear sense about the right of the far right just being organized along lines of of white racial identification.
0: But I guess to my mind, the, the real question is, Joe, do Republicans vote for these minority candidates because they make them feel good that they're not a white racist party, or do these minority candidates bring in minority voters?
4: Uh, you know, I think that um, I think some of both is happening and, um, I, you know, I, there's going to have to be more research, I think, uh, and more closely um, analyzed exit polls, for instance, to kind of figure out more what's going on. But I think, you know, uh, it would be it's not just window dressing. Uh, and the fact that this, this many, you know, candidates of color could be um, recruited already tells us something. But also the Republican National Committee has you know, has has dumped tons of resources into um, trying to organize and in, particularly in, in Latino uh, communities, but also Black American communities, trying to find, you know, wedge issues, trying to find ways in. And, you know, we can we, we do know that um, there has been greater support among various communities of color for Republican candidates. Uh, since 2016, there's been a it has been a movement kind of in one direction. It's slow, but it's definitely um, it, it is definitely there. So I think we have to both attend to the fact that there are white Republicans who don't want to see themselves or feel that they themselves are racist, uh, and that's why there's you know the backing of certain candidates. But there's and there's also st- strategic reasons for doing this. But then there's also uh, voters of color um be they black american or um you know mexican american or um you know from various other latino communities or vietnamese americans or chinese americans or you know there's there's a you know there's many different communities with many different reasons even within those communities of why someone might start supporting uh republican candidates but uh there's a there's a lot going on there for sure and i think that um that tends to get missed by the
0: kind of the pundit class, I guess? Well, just to run down the list of these candidates of color who basically flipped the house for the Republicans. You've got John James, the Detroit suburbs, Wesley Hunt in uh, the eastern suburbs of Houston. They're both black West Point graduates. Then you've got Anna Paula Luna, who describes herself as pro-life, pro-God, pro-gun, and anti-socialist. She flipped a House seat in Tampa, Florida, suburbs. Then we mentioned the 34-year-old George Santas, who flipped a Democratic seat in Long Island, and uh, he identifies as a MAGA candidate and uh, supports Florida Governor DeSantis. Uh, even DeSantis's don't-say-gay legislation, while Santas himself is gay. And then you've got Monica de la Cruz in South Texas. She flipped a seat as well. And then, uh, of course, you've got the congresswoman in Oregon as well, Chavez de Rameau. So Oregon, of course, is, a, is such a blue state. So it's a pretty impressive list of people. And again, the Democrats ought to be looking at this, surely, that these are the people that flip the house.
4: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, um, you know, each one of these is, is um, are cases where, you know, Democrats ought to be concerned and look closely at what what happened there you know i think that you know there was this autopsy report this famous autopsy report that, that that came out from the republican national convention after romney lost to obama in 2012 and part of the uh report stated that republicans have to pay much more attention to recruiting candidates of color and to focusing on um, voters of color but the other part of it was to say they would do this by kind of moderating and moving to the center on on messaging. What actually has happened now is that there is uh, after this election it became clear that uh you could do both. There was a possibility the Republicans could could recruit candidates of color and appeal to communities of color uh without uh, moving to the center at all With in, in fact, you know, saying squarely uh squarely on the right. So I think that's, you know, that's something that's um, clearly, and going forward, you know, they, we talk about in the article this. Ronald McDaniel, the head of the RNC, has put together a committee to talk about what the party needs to do uh, uh, to win back the House, you know, next time, and to to build the Republican base. And you know, out of 12 people on this committee, six of them are women and people of color uh, who are or you know who are Republican officials now, along with the 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 most far right members of the party or people like Blake Masters who just. Uh, the the strong trump supporting election denier who uh, lost in arizona so there's you know there's the the republicans seem to have figured out a way to begin to you know it's not let's be clear here it's not that anything close to a majority of any community of color uh in the electorate is is voting republican but that's not what's required. you just need to get enough voters to um, to flip a seat which is you know which means just cutting into these communities and that's what the, the Republicans have kind of begun to figure out how to do uh, again without having to sacrifice any of the um, Republican message Democrats you know um, seem to not get the message or feel that you know um, they I think in this last election to kind of Talk about Republican extremism and talk about preserving democracy in kind of broad and vague terms, uh, you know. But then kind of appealing to the to, to the center after that. And in some sense, this is a race and class issue, right? There's there are ways in which, if you're not providing for um, working class, you know, uh, Chicago communities or Black American communities or Puerto Rican communities or, um, you know, or people who who, like all of us, depend on uh, public goods, if you move away from that and you have very little to offer in terms of political vision or concrete policies, then you, you, know, you open up the territory for Republicans to appeal to people on other bases, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's religion, whether it's, uh, you know, the American military, whether it's, you know, uh, questions of abortion or, or whatever else. You know, I just was at West Point a few weeks ago And, um, you know, there's a strong emphasis there on on kind of multiracialism and on anti-racism. You know, I think that the U.S. military recognizes and realizes that in order to, you know, keep the empire running, they need they need to continue to recruit and advance, uh, you know, people of color. And you see at West Point in an elite institution. And you see here among a lot of these candidates, um, you know, as you said, two West Point grads and kind of military service among, uh, you know, a lot of people. And I think that's that's another way that Republicans have kind of uh, uh, cut into this, uh, to these bases here.
0: And what kind of role or uh, effect has the uh, Koch-funded Libre initiative had in particularly attracting uh, Latino candidates and Latino voters to vote for the Republicans?
4: Uh, I would say it's not incidental. I should say that um, Dan Hosing and I are editing, a, co-editing a, a volume of of, um, of articles by political scientists and historians and geographers who are looking at the various questions about, um, you know, the 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 growing multiracial right. And there's a group of terrific scholars here who are um, looking at the Libre Initiative. Uh, and studying it closely, and, and I think we, we don't quite know yet, uh, but I think there's there, it is now finally becoming a, a subject of research um, to see just what kind of, um, just one kind of influence it has. I think that it's not it's not small. and I think that it will in fact I think it will come to matter more in, in years to come.
0: But is there an element without disparaging these candidates of if you're an ambitious black politician, you'd be much better off joining the Republicans because, you know, they, they'll promote you. And when if you join the Democratic Party, you'd be lost. So, you know, every time you see Trump and these candidates, there's always a whole bunch of black and Latino people behind them, which, you know, quite often they're hired, hired hands. So is there an element of ambition in this? Or, or are these people all genuinely supporting their ethnic group?
4: I think you'd have to say that, you know, on the one hand, you know, by nature, politicians are uh, ambitious and strategic. And so there's no there's no getting around that fact. On the other hand, I think it would um, underestimate the um, the influence of conservative ideas to see these candidates as only opportunistic. I mean, you can look at the, you know, the biographies of of all the ones who won and, you know, there's um, their emphases on. On small business, on being anti-regulatory, on on certain kinds of you know so-called rural values, or um, you know, I, I think a, a number of other. I mean, it could go down the list here of uh, things we've already talked about. But I think in all these cases, you see there there are um, you know, it's there's, there's nothing new about the fact that there are conservative elements to. Um, to all these communities, just as there's conservative elements, you know, all over the country. You know, every every we all are kind of, you know, a, a mix, I think, of ideological perspectives or each, you know, communities are. And so I think that it's not, it may be a matter of emphasis more than just strategic um, ambition. Because, I, you know, there are either Catholic or evangelical reasons, as I said, that might draw, you know, someone towards the right or, you know, Anti-communism in certain communities, you know, other things which which you know can matter over the course of time. People you know people like to talk about, say Tim Scott, for instance, the uh, the the Tea Party senator from South Carolina, who's African American, and he's you know for a long time he was continually disparaged in the press as being you know as this, this token figure, but you know Tim Scott is you know he was the author of that major um, tax reform bill you know during the during the Trump years, and he has been a consistent kind of neoliberally ideological um, anti-tax, anti-regulation uh, figure, one of the most, uh, one of the one of the people in the party and in the Senate, on the Republican side, who is the most clear about these things and actually has the most to say about them, and so, and is, and is the architect of, of many of these kind of um, neoliberal policies. So I think that you, know, you really have to, we, we have to credit the fact that there are, um, you know, the way that Tim Scott talks about it is to say that uh, it was the market that he grew up poor and black and it was the market that liberated him. It was the it was the marketplace and it was capitalism that kind of helped him leave that behind. And so he tells a kind of a racialized Horatio, Horatio Alger story about, uh, about blackness and about poverty and about the market and what it did for him, which is not to say, which is, you know, most South Carolina voters, black voters don't buy it and don't follow it. But I think that Tim Scott is probably quite sincere in how he uh, narrates his own life and his own racialized position in regard to the party and its ideologies.
0: Well, Joseph Lowndes, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
4: Well, thank you, Ian. It's great to be here.
0: And I appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Joseph Lowndes, a professor of political science at the University of Oregon, who's an expert on conservatism, the Tea Party, social movements, the GOP, race and elections. He's the author of From the New Deal to the New Right, Race and the Southern Origins of Modern Conservatism, and the co-author of Producers, Parasites, Patriots, Race and the New Right-Wing Politics of Precarity. And he has an article, The New Republic with Daniel Hossain, How Right-Wing Candidates of Colour Delivered the House to Republicans. We can take a brief station break and back, following up on Senator Bernie Sanders' suggestion that Arizona Senator Sinema's switch from Democrat to Independent had a lot more to do with the lack of enthusiasm that Arizona Democrats had for somebody who helped sabotage some of the most important legislation that protects the interests of working families and voting rights.
3: We are amazed,
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Kai Newkirk, who's a progressive organizer in Tempe, Arizona, who co-founded Democracy Spring and was the architect of the largest American civil disobedience action of this century. He has trained thousands of people across America in movement organizing and nonviolent direct action. And he is the co-founder of the Arizona Coalition to End the Filibuster and the Cinema Primary pledge.com. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kai Newcook.
2: Great to be with you, and Thank you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Kai. And now that Kirsten Sinema, is after the Democrats um, won that hard-fought victory in Georgia to get a 51-49 majority in the Senate, of course, Kirsten Sinema took the opportunity to get back in the spotlight by saying that she's switching her Party preference from Democrat to Independent. She didn't make any sense when, and she made the announcement that I saw it on Jake Tapper on CNN. Sort of breezy platitudes and and but no real substance to what's going on here. So is this just a sort of vain dilettante
2: talking? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I think anyone who says they know what she's thinking or what her intentions are i think you know it's it's speculation right um but we can we can say what the you know how it lands for arizona democrats right it's it's not very surprising but it's still a great disappointment and for many a betrayal a lot of people worked really really hard to elect her in 2018 and the arizona democratic party the infrastructure the voters the volunteers the donors has been essential to her political rise from the state legislature through the House and to the Senate and you know everybody every elected official in my view should have a basic moral independence of conscience they should ultimately do what they feel is right but they alt- they're also accountable to a coalition that elected them and you might have disagreements there sometimes, but you, you, you show some respect. You try to explain it. You try to, um, look for opportunities to, to work together and to show that you're part of the same team. And when it comes to Democrats in cinema, she's relentlessly antagonized and disrespected Democrats. And, and, you know, with the, you know, the ring that said F off right on her Instagram post, uh, captured a lot of this, The sentiment of feeling like, I don't need you. I don't care about you. I take it for granted. And, you know, see see if you can make it without me. And I think that uh, this decision uh, is in line with that. And um, if she, you know, when you try to look at, well, what might have led to the timing, right, Um, or have driven her to make this decision because her politics haven't really shifted in the last few years, Uh, she's been in this posture, right? But one thing we can say is a fact, is not speculation, is that there's a lot of polling that shows that she would have an extremely difficult time trying to win a primary in the Democratic Party in 2024 With against multiple different hypothetical candidates. She does very, very poorly. So there's not really a viable path for her if she wants to run, run, uh, run for re-election and win um, in the Democratic Party. There could be as an independent, but we should be very clear. If she thinks that this is gonna scare Arizona Democrats off from challenging her and trying to replace her with a Democrat that we could trust, who will fight to end the filibuster, who will put working class families before big corporations, if she thinks that it's gonna scare us off, she's wrong. Uh, We're determined uh, to win. We think we can elect someone at least as good as Mark Kelly into that spot. And even if it's a three-way race and she runs as an independent, uh, we believe that uh, we can get it done, and, and we're going to be determined to do so.
0: So, are you in talks with Ruben Gallego?
2: No, I, I'm not personally. Um, and the the project, uh, Cinema dot com that you mentioned, um, you know, I'm I'm part of the group that started that, and is ultimately going to have to decide where um the funds that we've raised which is a modest amount of pledges that we were trying to put pressure on cinema to do the right thing on the filibuster we said if she votes the wrong way then those pledges will be converted to donations to a challenger who will work to end the filibuster and has, has a real record of of a, of accountability and fighting for all the communities that make up arizona so we're going to make a collective decision about that at some point um i will say personally i i've been glad to see and and There was, there was some time where the fight around the filibuster and to push cinema was really raging in Arizona. And most of the, everybody pretty much, but Raul Grijalva, longtime stalwart progressive at the federal level, were were pretty quiet on it. But Gallego became more vocal. Um, Greg Stanton, you know, has raised his voice some. Um, and I think now that cinema is not, you know, is not going to run the primary, I think it really opens things up, because it's a much riskier move to say, I'm going to challenge the sitting senator, right, in our party, than it is to say, I'm going to run in this open primary. Um, So I think we're probably going to see multiple candidates get in. Um, And for me, and for that group, we're going to, we're going to be looking at who really distinguishes themselves, right, as someone that we can uh, count on, uh, to go in a different direction than cinema, to really be accountable to all the constituencies that make up the Democratic Party, um, and that we know will cast the hard votes to move uh, us forward, um, including on ending the filibuster.
0: So if it's Ruben Gayoga or Greg Stanton, whenever that happens, won't then cinema be in a situation where she could be even more rebellious and not even caucus with the democrats i mean they have to be nice to her don't they because for every damn vote they got to get right. her on board but she sort of said she she's not that categoric about it she's still playing games but she's more or less says you know gonna caucus with them right At least yeah and that's and, the situation Schumer, but I yeah i was gonna say i think schumer's more or less said that but what happens if when a challenger announces on the Democratic side, will that change her position vis-a-vis the Democrats? And then she could basically become a I think complete independent, you know, a freelancer? I don't
2: know. I'm, I'm not sure she has much more that she'll have, you know, um, much greater reason to try to shake things up in terms of the Senate power relationship then than she does now, right? She, she says, I hope I can stay in my committee seats um, and, uh, Schumer said, you know, he had this little statement, cinema has always been independent, right. Da, da, da. So I think, you know, we haven't seen anything from Biden. I think they want to try to continue to work with her the best they can in the Senate right now. And I don't think she wants to go nuclear. I don't think she knows she doesn't have a home with the Republicans, right. Especially the Arizona Republican party. And, um, I think she wants to be able to continue to do some of the things that she's been doing in the Senate. So trying to maintain her standing and, and support to be on the committees that she's on and so on. It seems to be important to her. And there's going to have to be a dance, right, um, with Schumer and Biden and so on. But I think the line that we have to hold with them and that Arizona Democrats, I think, are going to be really strong and demanding from national party leaders, from Biden to Schumer and on down, is that they have to be very clear at some point or another, hopefully earlier that they will back the winner of the Democratic primary in this race, right? That there's no way that they're going to back cinema and re-election if she's running as an independent and potentially splitting things. Um, that's the accountability that we, we need to demand, and we need to try to build the momentum for that, hopefully to deter her from running as an independent, period. Um, but if she does, to make sure that we've got the resources, the unity, the power to win a three-way race if necessary, which I think we can do, the GOP more likely to, you know, nominate another candidate like Kerry Lake, far right, hard right extremist conspiracy theorist, right? Um, that's, that's the trend that is going, even though there's some recriminations after all the defeats they've had in this last cycle. So the idea that they wouldn't nominate someone to try to go with cinema to keep a, a, a real Democrat out, I think is, it's fanciful. They're going to put somebody forward, likely far right and. The Democrat, And cinema. she doesn't have a base of her own. She doesn't have an infrastructure of her own. She's a great big money fundraiser, but that's not enough to win uh, a, a Senate race uh, in, in a state like Arizona or, or perhaps anywhere. Um, and we know that we have a strong infrastructure that elected her in 2018 and Kelly um, in 2020 and 2022, and that just elected Hobbs and these other statewide races. That's going to back the Democratic nominee. And if we have someone that can inspire our base and also reach out to all Arizonans, independents, uh, Republicans who are part of an anti-fascist, pro-democracy coalition. Then I think we can win, even with Sinema running as an independent. But we got to be clear that we expect national Democrats at every level to ultimately back the decision of Arizona Democrats.
0: So, is there any polling that would indicate whether or not that running against her, or a Democrat running, and she then running as a as an independent? Whether it would split the Democratic vote or whether it would split the independent and the Republican vote?
2: I haven't seen any three way polling. I mean, this just came out, and I don't know if anybody mm-hmm. was looking far enough ahead and thinking about it, but so, we do know that we have a lot of polling that she's not very popular with independents, right? And she's very unpopular with Democrats, right? And she's kind of, um, she has more popularity than you'd expect with Republicans because of all the ways she screwed the Dems, but, um, Still, they don't love her, right? She's not on board with all these different positions that are crucial, you know, that are core for them. Like choice, for example, and abortion. She's always been very clear she supports safe and legal abortion, right? So, And the gay marriage thing, she uh, just
0: pushed that through the Senate.
2: Yeah, there's all these different issues that are very important to the Republican base where she's not on board with them. So, um, you know, it's hard to see where she puts together that constituency, right? There's going to be some more moderate and very conservative Democrats. Right. And more right-leaning independents, Right. Um, and, and, you know, and, and some, you know, left-leaning independence that would be amenable to her. Right. But getting anywhere close to, there's no way to get to a majority with that. Right. And I think it's tough to even to get to a 30% plus or something like that, if you're thinking about splitting things pretty evenly. So I think it's a hard path for her. It's, 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 I would prefer to defeat her in a Democratic primary and then be able to run in the general just against the Republicans. But if this is what we have to do, it's what we have to do. And I'm confident that we can win.
0: And she's, cinema is, is very close with Andy Biggs, who is mm-hmm. an insurrectionist, right? He spoke at yeah. the Ellipse on January the 6th when yeah. they exhorted the crowd to march on the Capitol. And now he's going to challenge Kevin McCarthy for the speakership of the House. Mm. So... What do you know about that relationship they're supposed to be very close friends
2: i I don't know much other than you know what's been reported in the press right and she said she she loves him and so on and you know I love everyone I'm committed to that ethic right but I don't like him and I don't and I detest so much of what he's doing and I think this what you're hitting on here is one of the things that's been most maddening about cinema over the last few years that she has She's acted like she's got her head in the sand and, and isn't aware that this anti-democratic uh, neo-fascist force has become dominant in the Republican Party in our country and, and, and in Arizona to the, to the extent of the you know the attempted coup and the violence of January 6 and all this stuff that we've seen across the country. And that was one of the things that pushed us actually to start this coalition in Arizona that became Arizona Co- Coalition and the filibuster is her silence after January 6th. When before Trump, um, you know, uh, in the, the window between there and, and the inauguration, there was a real question. Is, is he going to continue to try to do more things to try to prevent the peaceful transfer of power? And we had to have swift accountability to prevent that. And she was really silent on what happened and his responsibility and the need to remove him from office and disqualify him, and all this stuff that was patently obvious to anyone who was honestly observing what was going on. And that, to me, was a sign of, of just a profound either detachment from reality or a cynical, opportunistic and, and really cowardly uh, refusal to, to face reality and, and what it requires right? and to confront this really dangerous force. Um, and that is something that we just cannot afford among our leaders right now. If you're going to be part of this pro-democracy coalition that is trying to um, prevent you know, the success of these forces that want to try to impose this minority rule, that embrace violence, that embrace lies, um, that see only certain kinds of people as legitimate participants in American democracy. Um, and only victories for their side as legitimate. We can't afford anybody who doesn't understand the, uh, how critical that is and, and understand that we have to be honest about it, we have to name it, and we have to mobilize everyone who opposes that to stand together and draw the line.
0: Well, cook I thank you so much for joining us here today.
2: Great to be with you. Thanks again for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Kai Newkirk, who's a progressive organizer in Tempe, Arizona, who co-founded Democracy Spring and was the architect of the largest American civil disobedience action in this country. He trained thousands of people across America in movement organizing and nonviolent direct action. And is the co founder of the Arizona Coalition to End the Filibuster and the Cinema Primary Pledge.com. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon, and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates, as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.